Wives. Two wives. That sounds like trouble right off the bat, doesn't it? Um, let's, let's begin in verse 1. Genesis 29 and verse 1. It says, So Jacob went on his journey, and he came to the land of the people of the east. Now, if you'll remember from, from last week's lesson, uh, Jacob has, uh, has left home. He's heading to Mesopotamia. He has stopped uh, overnight at a city called Luz, uh, outside the city, and he, and he lays down to sleep, and God gives him a vision. And he gets up this morning, and he continues on his journey, and he has to have uh, a, a lightness in his step, because overnight, God has told him, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to bring you back to this Land. So he's kind of got this, this uh, uh, force field. It feels like probably nothing can hurt me, right? God is going to be with me and God's going to bring me back. So he goes on his journey where before he might have been very fearful. Am I going to make it? Who's going to watch over me? Now he knows that God has given him a promise. I will bring you back to this, to this land. In fact, if you remember in chapter 27 when he goes into his father, he refers to God as your God. But now, in, in chapter 28, he refers to God as, as my God. So, so again, he's got a whole new lease on life as he leaves that place and heads toward uh, Mesopotamia. Now, let's look at verses 2 and 3. It says, And he looked, and he saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. And a large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Now, you may be asking, well, what in the world would a stone be doing on a, on a well's mouth? Well, in that day, a stone would have been used like a cover to protect the well. You remember, they're out in, a, uh, they're out in the desert. They've got a lot of sandstorms. There's a lot of uh, stuff that could fill in the well and pollute the well. So what they'll do is they'll put a stone over it, and that acts kind of like a cover, and it protects it from being polluted or, or filled with sands during one of those frequent sandstorms. Verses 4 through 6. And so Jacob, he comes up on this well, and he comes up on these people with flocks there, and he says to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor, of course, who is Jacob's uncle, who he's looking for? And they said, We know him. And so he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now, Jacob at this point knows that he has arrived at his destination. He finds shepherds who are from the city that he's going to. Uh, they know his uncle Laban, his mother, uh, Rebecca's brother. And so he's there, and, and they say his daughter will be here soon. So I guess he assumes, Well, I'll just wait for her. And when she comes, she can take me to her father's house. Now, while he's waiting, something strikes him a little unusual. Look at verse 7. So he said to them, look, it is still high day. Or in other words, in, in our terminology, you're, he's saying, look, it's still broad daylight. It's not time for the cattle. And that word for cattle there is the Hebrew word for livestock. So what he's saying, it's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Why don't you water the sheep? and then go back and feed them. So let, let me tell you what he's saying here. What he's saying is the sheep are not gathered in for the night until much later. So it's still, it's, it's, it's probably high noon or, or shortly thereafter. It's broad daylight, okay? 
And so what Jacob is saying is, I don't understand what you're waiting for. You're just sitting around, wasting time. Why don't you go ahead and water your sheep? Then you can take them back out to the fields and you can graze them till it's time to go in for the, for the night. In other words, what he's telling them, you're just wasting time. What are, you, what are you doing? Why don't you just go ahead and water the sheep? And look at verse 8. But they said, we can't do that. We can't water the sheep until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the whale's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, who is this mysterious they, right? Why couldn't the shepherds just roll the stone, water the sheep, and then roll the stone back on? What is, what, why are they waiting, and who is this mysterious they? Okay, now, a few things about this. You gotta remember that shepherds in that day were normally very young boys. When I say young boys, I mean probably five, six, seven, eight years old. Very young, young kids. You remember, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel, uh, goes to Jesse, uh, to anoint the king. And Jesse causes seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And God says, nope, 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 not that one. And finally Samuel says to Jesse, is this all the sons you got? And, 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 and Jesse says, no, the youngest is, is here, but he's out tending the sheep. And that would, of course, been King David. So in that day, very young boys were the ones that kind of went out and watched the sheep. In addition, as we've already seen from today's passage, women or young girls would also serve as shepherdesses, which is what Rachel was doing. So physically, they may not have been able to, lo- to roll that stone off of that well. You know, it would have been up a little bit probably, and they would have had to roll it off. Physically, they may not have been able uh, to do that. They had to wait for somebody stronger to come along. But also keep in mind, and we've, we've mentioned this several times, a well in that day, somebody had to go to the trouble and the expense of digging it. So when you went somewhere and you dug a well, that well became yours. Now, you obviously, you would, you would share it and all of that kind of thing, but it belonged to you. And, and since it belonged to what, this well belonged to someone, someone then had the power to prescribe how and when this well uh, got used. So this particular well is not just left open for anybody to use any time they want it. Evidently, there is an agreement in place with this well that at a certain time of day, all the flocks would be gathered together, and then the, the, the well would be uncovered. And so the they is probably the whoever owns the well, it's their servants. So they would come at 1 o'clock or 12 o'clock or whatever. The servants of this man that owns a well would come, roll the stone off. They'd all water their flocks, and then they would put the stone uh, back on. So that's so it could have been a couple of reasons why they weren't able to just do it on their own. Look at verses 9 through 11. Now this you say, well, why does the Bible even talk about that? Well, you'll see here in just a minute. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near, and he rolled the stone from the whale's mouth, and he watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he lifted up his voice, and he wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative, and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Now, Jacob 
does a lot of stuff right here. And why he did what he did in the order that he did, we don't really know. We kind of have to to read between the lines. But first of all, you can kind of tell he's a typical man. He sees this good-looking woman, and the first thing he's got to do is show out, right? He's got to he's got to impress her, right? So the first thing he does is, well, there's that, you know, I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm going to run up here, and I'm going to roll this well. So he literally ignores what he's just been told by the shepherds, right? They said, we got to wait. Till the, till the, till the uh, servants or whoever gets here, he completely ignores that when he sees her. And he runs up there, takes the, the, the stone off the well, and he waters her flock. Notice, I think it says he waters her flock. He's not worried about them other guys' flock at all, right? He's, he's focused on her. Then, of all things, he kisses her, and then finally he says, oh yeah, by the way, I mean, what does she think, right? Here's this crazy man. Uh, taking the stone off the well. Then he runs up and kisses her, and he ain't even told her yet who he is. So the f- last thing he does is introduce her uh, himself as her relative. So basically, if you look at it, all convention just goes out the door. Are you with me? He Whatever overcame him, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, just all convention went, all the rules went out the door. He could care less. He was going to impress her, he was going to kiss her, and then finally tell her that he was her Relative. So, whether this is love at first sight, whether this is some kind of a, a attempt to, to sweep her off her feet, we don't we don't know. But regardless, the two have now met, and the stage is, is set for the rest of their uh, relationship. Look at verses thirteen and fourteen. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, and he embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for about a month. Now, it says he told Laban all these things. And Laban said, Well, surely you are my my sister's son. Well, what are all these things? Well, I'm sure Jacob would have reported to him all the stuff that's been happening in the land of Canaan. I'm sure Laban would have been interested in his sister and his sister's welfare. It's been many, many years since, in fact, many decades uh, since he's seen her. Uh, I also think Jacob would have reported probably about the stuff that happened with Esau uh, and, and probably also the fact that he is looking for a, uh, a wife. Whatever he told Laban, it was sufficient to know. Because, by the way, keep in mind, Jacob could have been anybody, Right? He could have been some stranger saying, oh, I'm your, I'm your sister's brother. But all of the things he related were able to convince Laban that, yes, you are who you say you are and a near kin to him. So he stays with Laban for one month. And evidently, as he stays there, a couple things are happening. First of all, him and Rachel are, are able to spend time together and get to know one another. And, uh, and they develop a, a stronger love or a deeper affection uh, as they go through those those 30 days. And uh, remember, Jacob leaves home with nothing, only his staff. He's got no dowry, he's got no money, no servants, no flocks, none of that stuff. So when he comes to Laban, he's got to work. And so one of the things he does for that month is he's working for, for Laban. And Laban sees, man, this guy is a, is, a really good, is, a, is a really good worker. Look at verses 15 to 17. So Laban says to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me or work for me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, 
and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, we are introduced for the first time to uh, uh, this, this girl, this older sister named Leah. So let's talk about her for just a minute. There's probably not uh, many other women in history that have been more misunderstood than Leah. First of all, let's start with her name, okay? Her name means one of two things. It means to weary or it means cow. The, the, the root Hebrew word for her name can mean both of those things, to weary or it could mean cow. Now, you might say, well, there's no way it means cow. I mean, come on, what kind of dad would have a daughter and name her cow, right? Well, the, the problem is, though, Rachel means you, right? Rachel means her, the, the younger sister. Rachel means the re, root word for that is either you or beautiful. And so her name could very well mean you or, or a female sheep. So it could be that, that, that Leah's name actually means cow. Regardless, whether it means cow or to weary, it ain't, it ain't very uh, glamorous, right? Um, it's, it's, your, your name kind of sticks with you. But that's not really the point. The point is, it's the statement that she had weak eyes that has probably done her the most disservice, right? Because when you think of everybody, I think when you think of Leah, you think of this homely girl that really's got no prospects and, and she's overshadowed by this just incredibly beautiful sister. In fact, here are a few other translations. Um, one translation says Leah had ordinary eyes. Another translation says Leah looked rather plain. Another one says she had no sparkle. I mean, they're all, <laughs> this ain't sounding good, right? I mean, they're, they're trying to dance around it and say, Leah, you know, she's, she's kind of homely and, and all of this other kind of stuff. All right. Now, I think that that kind of thinking is, is, is just completely unjustified. And here's why. If you go look at the word there that's used for weak, it says she had weak eyes. The Hebrew word is rakak. Okay, R-A-K-A-K. And the word means tender, delicate, or soft. In fact, I've got a, you can't see it, but I've actually got a Hebrew lexicon up there that says the word means tender, delicate, or, or soft. And if you look at that word at other places in the Bible, it is never, and I mean never used in a demeaning way. It's never used to describe somebody or something as defective. In some way. For example, we've already seen it used one time. You remember in Genesis 18 when the Lord comes down with the two angels and he meets with Abraham before he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It says this, Abraham ran to the herd and he took a tender and choice calf. That word tender is rakak. Okay? Now, there's nothing, is anything wrong with that calf? No, there's nothing wrong with that calf. In fact, wouldn't have they have selected the best calf? So, so this is not a defective. It just means that it's, it's tender. When it says it's weak, it's, it, it can't protect itself, right? It's, it's delicate. It's, it's soft, right? It's, that's the idea, not homely or not defective in some way. So we've already seen that. Now there's another verse. Now I gotta give you some context before I show you this verse. There's a, there's a place in Deuteronomy where God is basically telling the Israelites, listen, I have done all this stuff for you, and I have, I've given you this law, and I've blessed you, but if you disobey me, 
bad things are going to happen. Okay? This is the context of this next verse. And, and he, he basically begins to pronounce these curses on them. And many commentators believe that what you're going to read, what I'm going to read to you in just a second, actually happened in A.D. 70. Everybody know what happened in A.D. 70? The, the Jews rebelled against Rome, and Rome came to Jerusalem, and they built a siege, and they starved the whole city out. And, and, and we know about it because Josephus wrote about it. He was there. I mean, women were eating their own children. It was a horrible... I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people died over a, a long period of time. I mean, it's a very bad situation. Well, many commentators believe that what I'm going to read to you right now is actually a prophecy of that that happened in A.D. 70. But if you read it in context, it's a, it's a prophecy of the, what God is saying, this is what's going to happen if you disobey me. This is Deuteronomy 28, 56 to 57. And I'm reading it because I want you to see the, the word. It says this, and he's talking about a woman. He says, the most tender, and there's that word again, rakak, the most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender. There's that word again. So he's, he's describing a woman who's very ladylike, right? She's so tender, she won't go outside and even take her shoes off and let her foot touch the ground. She's delicate, she's tender, she's soft. And what he says, that type of woman will, re, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out between her feet. He's saying they'll be so hungry that when she gives birth, she'll eat her own afterbirth and won't share it with her children. I mean, that's a, that's a terrible verse. And so, again, I'm not, I hate to bring the whole mood down right there, but the idea is that word that's used there is not describing a homely woman. It's describing a refined woman, a, a, a very delicate woman. a very so, so you got Rachel, right, who's out being a shepherdess, right? She's kind of this out there getting, you know, got this fire and go get it. And here's, here's, here's Leah, who's more ladylike, more refined, more stay-at-home, more delicate, more tender, who doesn't do that kind of, of stuff. So if you take that word in its normal sense, it doesn't mean homely. It doesn't, there's nothing there that's saying she's defective in any kind of way. It's just saying she's very soft, she's very delicate, she's very, she's very tender. Now, on the other hand, the Bible describes to us Rachel. And Moses, out of all the things he could say, the one thing he zeroes in on Rachel is her physical looks. Doesn't say she was a woman of great character, doesn't say anything about her on the inside. It just says, when you saw Rachel, the one thing that popped out at you was her physical attractiveness. Now, he could be drawing our attention to this because this is what attracted uh, Jacob, right? When Jacob saw her out there, I mean, he was like, man, this is, the, this is the one. And so it could be all about their relationship could very well be based on physical attractiveness, and that's the only thing. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man, so stay with me. Now, I want you to watch Laban, okay? He never says, I want you to read his statement again. Jacob says, I'll serve you seven years for Rachel, your daughter. And what does Laban say? 
Well, you know, it's better I give her to you than to another man. So he never, ever specifically says that if you serve me seven years, I'll give her to you. He never says that. He implies it, but he never says it. And of course, Jacob's in this, uh, he's in this, you know, this state of ecstasy. He's in love, so he, he just hears what he wants to hear. But Laban never says specifically that I'll give her. Well, it's better I give her to you, but he just implies it. Look at verse 20 to 21. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, so seven years are up, and he says to her, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. In other words, that I may have relations with her. Now, you cannot read this verse without concluding that there's some kind of physical attraction. I mean, the man's been waiting seven years, right? So, so he's obviously a little bit um, anxious, but it's going to be very ironic that it's his physical appetite that's going to lead him to make a big mistake. By the way, just like his father. Remember his father before him who wanted the meat so bad that he was literally, he, he, he just overlooked the fact that he had doubts about whether this was really his son. He gets fooled by his physical appetites. The same thing is going to happen to Jacob. Verse 22 to 24. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and he made a feast. Now it came to pass, and by the way, that word feast in the Hebrew literally means a drinking party. He gets together all the men, and he has a drinking party. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and he brought her to Jacob, and he went into her, and Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. Now, let's be honest, okay? We all know this story. That he, uh, Laban gives the wrong sister. And so they go in, and somehow Jacob doesn't know it. And, and I, every time I read this story, I'm like, okay, come on. <laughs> How can that happen, right? He's been with her seven years. For seven years, he's heard her voice. For, for seven years, he's he smelled the scent of her hair. For seven years, he's been around her, and he can't tell the difference. I mean, how in the world does this happen? Well... Let me give you a, a couple of ways that could have happened. Remember, as I just said, he's waiting seven years. The, the man is eager, to say the, the least, right? That would have been normal. By the way, at the feast, which as I said, in Hebrew, it means a drinking party, there would have been plenty of wine to go around. Now, the Bible never comes out and says that he was, was drunk or anything like that, but let's just assume that he probably had sufficient wine to have dulled his senses, at least in some way. It's obviously dark in the tent, right? Because the man's not blind. If there would have been a candle in the tent, he would have said, hey, look, you're not the right one, right? So it's obviously dark in the tent. In addition, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but wouldn't this have been ironic? If, if Leah had come in wearing Rachel's clothes, or if Leah had come in with Rachel's perfume. Now, wouldn't that have been ironic? And we may say, oh, she wouldn't have done that. Jacob did it. Jacob did it. Jacob fooled his father by wearing his brother's clothes. Jacob went so far as to, as to put goat skin on his hands. Wouldn't that have been ironic if she had fooled him by wearing her sister's clothes or, or having her sister's perfume on? So we don't know all the details, but sufficiently... 
whatever happened was enough that he had no idea it was her. So you've got this over-anxious bridegroom. You've got it. He's dulled by wine. It's in the, it's in the, it's in a dark. He can't see a thing. Possibly a, 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 a bride who's got his sister's clothes, his sister's perfume on. So if you put all that together, it's really no wonder that he got deceived. So in the morning, he rolls over to, to give, uh, to give Rachel a hug. And lo and behold, he got the shock of his, of his life. It's the wrong sister. Verse 25. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, I love this, What is this you have done to me? The deceiver gets deceived, right? Isn't this just like life? You can do all this stuff, but when somebody does it to you, you just can't believe they would do that to you. Right? How could you do that to me? Me? I'm a nice guy. Oh, sure, I did that to my dad, but that was, that, I was a different person back then, right? So he asked Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? Now listen, Laban knows this question's coming. He's probably been planning this for a while. He didn't just do this on the spur of the moment. So he's not, he's not taken aback by this, by this question. So he gives this planned response that he has uh, probably been planning for quite a while. Verse 26 and 27. And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And, and so Laban basically says, look, in our country, you cannot marry off a younger sister before you marry the older. We just can't, culturally, we just can't do that. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, but that's, that was his excuse. And then he says this, fulfill her week. And by the way, this word is the, the, the Hebrew word for a seven-day week, not seven years. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also, talking about Rachel, for the service with which you will serve me still another seven years. All right, what's he talking about here? According to wedding customs in that day, in Jewish wedding customs, you would have a marriage feast that would last seven days. And this is kind of where we get our honeymoon from. The idea is that, keep in mind, in that day, completely different from today, in that day when a young man and a young woman went for a walk, guess who went with them? Somebody. <laughs> you didn't walk out alone. You, a chaperone went with you. You went for a carriage ride in the country. Somebody went with you. You were never alone. So when they get married, they've never been alone together. Just them. So the idea of this seven-day feast, this seven-day honeymoon, is before the, the man has to go back to the fields or go back to the army or go back to wherever it is that he has to go back to. This is a seven-day period where, the, where the, this new husband and wife can spend time together. They can be alone together, you know, just no outside interference. Like they've, Everybody with me? This is kind of where we get this idea of a honeymoon from these old, old customs because they would have never been alone together. So he says, fulfill her seven days. In other words, Laban is saying, look, spend this seven days with Leah. Spend this week with Leah. Fulfill your duties to her. Then I'll give you Rachel. And that's exactly what he did. So the man had two weddings in eight days. Sometimes when you read this, it, you think, well, he had to wait another seven years for Rachel. But that's not, that's not what happened. Okay, it's not that. He's saying, fulfill this honeymoon period, fulfill this seven days, and then I will give you Rachel. So the man, again, has two weddings in, in eight days. Verses 28 and 30. 
Then Jacob did so, and he fulfilled her week, fulfilled that seven days. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also, and Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. So you see how he went into her, and then he had to still serve another seven years. So he only had to wait a week before he could marry Rachel. So now he's got two wives, one of which he didn't even want. Now, for Leah, this is a, this is really a, you gotta really feel for Leah. This is a day and time which is a patriarchal society where women, and especially daughters, really had no control over their lives. Their fathers could marry them off to anybody at any time. I mean, here's, I mean, here's Rachel who is basically forced to go in. You go into that man. She knows she's going to be married. He's going to wake up in the morning and look at her, and he never wanted her. She knows he's in love with her sister. And so it's just a really pathetic situation that she finds herself in. Verse 31 to 32. So when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, which literally means, look, a son. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. That's just sad, isn't it? I mean, it really is sad when you, when you look at, at Leah. And we'll talk next week about Leah, because Leah, God, God just does some, <laughs> he just does some things sometimes that you just could never plan out. If you, if you sat down to plan it out, it just, it, it completely works out a different way, uh, than you would think. So she's got this son and she thinks, okay, I've got this son, I've named him Reuben, and now my husband is gonna love me. So it, it seems that if you were in this marriage, or these marriages, that he, Jacob's love for, for Rachel is so strong that he probably hardly even notices Leah. And she, she feels it, right? She knows she's not loved. So this child kind of kindles this hope. Now he's going to love me because I've given him a son. Not just a daughter, I've given him an heir, right? But that didn't happen. She's still unloved when her second child is born, verses 33. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means uh, heard, the Lord heard. With the birth of her third son, she still hoping for something from Jacob. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me. It seems like she stopped even thinking about love anymore. She just wants an attachment. Y'all see that? She's not even, the idea that he's going to ever love her is, is gone. She just wants him to be attached to her. Some kind of, whatever, whatever that means. Because I have borne him three sons, and therefore his name was called Levi. And Levi means attached. Verse 35, And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Now I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah, which means praise. And then she stopped bearing. See, if you go back and you look at these four sons, the first son, it's all about the love. Jacob's going to love me. Jacob's going to love me. And she has a second son. And again, it's all about Jacob's going to love me. Jacob's going to love me. And then the third son, Jacob, maybe Jacob will come attached to me. With those three sons, it's all about how this is going to affect her relationship with Jacob. But by the time she gets to the fourth son, something has changed. 
I mean, obviously she still wants Jacob's love, but it seems that she has come to the point where she realizes that God's love is better than his love. That the love of God and to be loved by God is far greater than being loved by just a man. Because she realizes in him. So when she gets that fourth child, it just becomes about, I praise God. Praise God for what he's doing in my life in spite of the fact that my husband doesn't love me. Now listen, if you're reading this and you think this is all very weird, can I tell you, you're right. This is all very weird, but let me tell you, that's exactly what sin does. Open your eyes and look around you. Open your eyes and look what's going on out there, and you tell me it ain't weird? And see, what we do as people is we just normalize it and call it normal. See, back then, they would have seen things like this and they just called it normal because that was their life. We do the exact same thing. We've got stuff going on in this world and in our families and it's weird, man. (laughs) Can we be honest? It's weird. But that's what sin does. And we call it normal. Now, I want to close. I've got about 10 minutes. I want to close with some a few conclusions. There's really probably not another chapter in the Bible that contains more lessons for living than this chapter does. I mean, there is so much. You could just come into different parts of this story and pick out uh, entire sermons. I'm going to give you just a few of them. Number one is the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. Galatians 6, 7, Paul tells us, whatever a man, we all know this verse, whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. If you, if you sow deception, you're going to reap deception. That's what that verse means. In fact, this is so true in the life of Jacob. There are some parallels here that you just, when you really look at the parallels between what Jacob sowed and what he reaped, they're all over the place. For example, he deceives his father, and then he is deceived by his bride's father, right? He, he deceives his father, his blind, he deceives a blind man, then he's deceived in the dark, right? You know, because he couldn't see, he, he ends up with the wrong sister. He cheats his brother out of the rights of the firstborn, and then he's cheated because of the rights of a firstborn daughter. I mean, it just all comes back on him. Okay? He's sown deception, and now he is reaping deception. And again, I mentioned this earlier. Did you notice how shocked he was that, that, Jake, that Laban could pull a dirty trick on a nice guy like me? Okay? There's nothing like sometimes, and I think this is true, there's nothing like a dose of our own medicine to, to wake us up. There's nothing like a dose of our own medicine to help us see our sin and how our sin affects others. Listen, being a child of God, and and Jacob is at this point. He's got a faith in God. Being a child of God does not come with a get-out-of-jail-free card in this life. Let me say it again, young people. Being a child of God, being a Christian, does not come with a get-out-of-jail-free card in this life. If you sin, you will pay the consequences in this life. There, you will reap what you sow in this life. Okay? It always comes with consequences. You just can't say, oh, I'm sorry, I hope that... No, you live with what you've done, right? And what God does, the great thing about God is He will use the consequences of, the, of our sin to shape us. This is what He's doing with Jacob. All of this predicament that Jacob finds himself in is all because of his own sin. 
right? But God is using, He's going to use the next 20 years, as I said last week, to chip off of Him and shape Him and mold Him and make Him into the person that God wants Him to be. Now, God doesn't do this, okay? God's not cruel. God's not doing something to get even. By the way, God's not even interested. We love poetic justice, don't we? Even when I said, oh, Jacob did this and he got this, there's something in us that says, yeah, that's the way it works. Love that poetic justice. God's not interested in poetic justice. God doesn't care anything about that. God wants to teach us how serious our sin is, and God wants to conform us to the image of His Son. That's all He's interested in. He's not interested in any kind of poetic justice or anybody getting their comeuppance. That's not, that's not what He's interested in. For the child of God, He's interested in molding and making us into the image of His Son, and He will use the consequences of our sin to do that. Number two... A lesson that comes out of this is God's guidance. You remember uh, back years ago when uh, Isaac needed a wife and Abraham uh, sent his servant. Remember, we spent a whole lesson on that, and and they, you know, they he sent his servant, and 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 Isaac submitted to that, and he got his wife Rebecca pretty quickly. Right, everything went went pretty well. Um, he was able to use his father's wisdom. He was able to use his father's finances and everything that goes with that to obtain a wife. But Jacob is in a completely different situation. His father's not involved at all. I'm sure his father had plenty of money, but he didn't give any of it to Jacob. Jacob is on his own because of his sin. He's kind of detached or disconnected from his father and from his family. And then he comes to this he comes and he, and he sees this girl, and I'm going to be really honest with you, I don't see, to me, his complete decision was driven by his hormones. I don't see any place where he prays, God, is she the right one for me? I don't see any place where he goes and seeks some guidance from somebody maybe older and say, hey, what about, do y'all think she's, we, we're a good match, yes or no? We don't see any of those kind of things. So his, his decision that he makes is driven more by hormones than any other factor. And I bring this up because we live in a day that's very romantically oriented, don't we? Movies are all, you know, romantic movies, and we love the love at first sight and and all of that kind. And as it is, sometimes we can find ourselves rooting for Rachel and kind of booing Leah. I mentioned last week, when we read stories, that we tend to want to find good guys and bad guys. The villains and the heroes. And, and we love all this love at first sight stuff. And so for Ray, we're like, man, Rachel and Jacob, wow. He, he served seven years and it was like days because he loved her. You know, we, we love that kind of stuff. And here's old, here's old Leah, you know, horning in on everything, right? And trying to, you know, even though it wasn't her fault, and we kind of can see her as the bad guy if we're not careful. But let me tell you, what is romantic is not always right. What is romantic is not always right. You know, romanticism at the well called Jacob to just throw the rules out the door, didn't he? He didn't care what anybody, what the rules were. He didn't care what the laws were. He was going to take that stone off and impress that woman. And he did it. Romanticism, hormones, led him to choose Rachel, not Leah. Don't even think he gave Leah a shot. Romanticism so controlled him that on his wedding night, he didn't even know who he was with, and he chose the wrong woman. We need to be very careful, very careful of decisions in our life that are driven by romantics. 
that are driven by romanticism, that are driven by hormones, that are driven by feelings and emotions. Just because those feelings and emotions feel good does not make them right. And that can lead us to places that we look back in years from now and say, man, I, I cannot believe that I did that. Be very, very careful of that. Number three, God's grace. There are, listen, any chapter in the Bible, if you open it up, there are examples of God's grace. Yes? Anywhere. Jacob, of all people, is an example of God's grace. He's not a nice guy. But as we saw back in, I think, chapter uh, 25 or 26, uh, God chose him before he was even done anything good or bad. Chose him while he was in the womb. So he is a prime example. But in this story today, I want to pick another example of God's grace, and that's Leah. Jacob and Laban, and again, this is a, this is a situation where women had little rights, if any at all, back in that day. They, they just basically had to do what their fathers and their brothers told them to do. They were just, they had no rights at all. So Jacob and Laban have created this situation, and Leah is called in the, in the middle. As I said earlier, she's got to marry a man who doesn't love her. By the way, going into that marriage, she, it, she's put in opposition to her sister. Right? I mean, this is a bad situation, and she's got no say in it whatsoever. But just like in the case of Hagar years ago with Sarah, God sees everything. The men may not have been able to see her. They just saw her as a piece of flesh, and we just deal with her however we want. But God saw her. God saw her value. God saw her worth. If you go read this story, Leah gives birth to Judah, who will be the direct ancestor of Jesus Christ. She's the mother of Levi, who becomes basically the father of the Israelite priestly line. Not Rachel. Not Rachel. Leah. Rachel will die at an early age. In fact, as they are going back to Bethlehem, as they're going back to the land of Canaan, Rachel will die on the way and just be buried out in the wilderness somewhere. Leah will make it back to the land of Canaan, and she will eventually die there, and she will be buried in the cave of the patriarchs. She will be buried in the, in the cave of Machpelah with Abraham and with Sarah and with Isaac. Leah does that, not, not Rachel. See, Leah, listen, Leah may have been an afterthought to her father and to Jacob, but she wasn't an afterthought to God. God knew her, God had a plan for her, and God worked everything out where she becomes the mother of the, of, of the priestly line. She becomes the mother of, of the line in Judah, of Judah. So God, God knows what He's doing. God sees, and I think that's a wonderful thing for, for all of us. Number four, real quick, God's timing. You remember years ago, uh, Rebecca has sent Jacob away to go to her uncle's house. Go to, go to my uncle because your brother wants to kill you. Uh, stay there, stay there a little while and when your brother settles down, you can come back. It turns out he's going to be gone 20 years. He's never going to see his mother again. And for 14 of those years, he doesn't earn really anything other than room and board and two wives, one of which he didn't even want. 14 years he's working, 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 and, and working. But let me tell you, we think 14 years. God, couldn't you have done it a little quicker than that? But let me tell you something, and, and everybody in here knows this is true in your life. God is not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. I, I, I taught a lesson one time, and the title was, Is God Slow? Yes, He is. 
He's not concerned with our time frame at all. He takes whatever time he deems necessary to train his servants. Okay. By the way, we see this all throughout the Bible. Joseph spends his 20s, spends two years in an Egyptian jail accused of rape. Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep. 40 years. David spends his 20s running from King Saul, trying not to be killed. See, God is he's just not in a hurry. He's just not going to work things out the way we think he should. God has an eternal perspective. We have a temporary one, right? God's boot camp is not nine weeks and then he throws you out there. God's boot camp sometimes is 40 years. It takes the long haul to make us into who we need to, to be. Number five, and I want to close with this one, and I would be uh, remiss if I didn't bring this up. And this is really a, a lesson here on beauty. We, we live in a world today that is absolutely obsessed with beauty. I mean obsessed with it. Just open any magazine, turn on any TV, uh, open up the Internet. It's, it, I mean, everything is to, you know, defy aging and make you more beautiful and your hair softer and your eyes pop out and all these other things, right? But let me tell you, and there's nothing wrong with beauty, nothing wrong with that at all. But when you use it as a measure of value or self-worth, that is ungodly. Not just wrong, it's ungodly. It is ungodlike. And you say, well, how do you know that? 1 Samuel 16, 7. God says, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward, but God looks at the heart. So you and I, as Christians, when we judge people by the outside, we are ungodly because God doesn't do that. God looks at, at two women or two men and He doesn't judge them by how tall they are or how beautiful they are. He judges them by their heart. You see, I think that's one of the biggest problems Jacob had is Jacob just judged Rachel immediately by how she looked. Even Moses says this is how she looked. It was all about how she looked. But God didn't see it that way. You see, Leah's worth, as I mentioned, is never realized by her father. Her, her worth is never realized by her husband. But God saw it. God knew how valuable she was. God knew how, how worthy she was. And I, and I would hope that as people, as Christians, we could all learn to be content with who we are, with how God made us, and, and, and find our real worth in Him and not in some outward uh, standard that the world says that we should. Next week, um, well, unfortunately, this story doesn't go away. Uh, you get two women, two sisters in a marriage, it's all going to break out. So next week, we get to the battle of the brides in Genesis chapter 30. Let's pray. Father.